Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Can we give our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ a hand of praise? He's worthy. He's so awesome. We thank God for the worship and the reminder that the Lord indeed is the strength of our life. He is the source of our strength and being reminded of that. Let's pray as we approach God's word together. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we thank you again for the songs that have been lifted to your name, and we pray that your heart was blessed and pleased by our worship. We thank you now for the opportunity that we have to gather around your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light on our path. We cannot stumble in the darkness. We cannot be uncertain of our steps when your word directs us. We thank you in advance for how you will speak to us. And God, when we leave this place, we won't give any praise or any adulation to a person or to a place, but we'll give all glory to you, our Lord and our Savior. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray. Amen and amen. Can we give the Lord just one more hand of praise? He's so, so worthy of it. So worthy. Such an honor, uh, such a blessing to be back here at Northridge. I was saying to the crowd last night that I no longer need to set my GPS to get here. Uh, I know how to get here, and it's such a joy to be really a part of the family of God and to the leadership of this church. I never take it for granted or take it lightly when they invite me to come back, and uh, such a strong community of believers committed to causes far beyond yourselves, and we thank God that you're awakening the world to Jesus, and it's a blessing to be a part. Uh, we're going to be in the New Testament, the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 7. And it reads, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Verse 14, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus, and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Verse 16 again. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. As is my custom, as I announce the subject of a message, I invite the uh, members to get ready to turn to a neighbor to help me announce uh, that subject. And I know that for all the antisocial people, this is a very difficult moment for you. Uh, so I'm just asking for God's grace on you as you get ready to enter into this very difficult time. But if you don't mind, decide which way you're going to turn, because I'm always confused which way do I turn. But get ready to turn to your neighbor and help me announce the subject today, all right? Turn to your neighbor and ask them a question. Say, neighbor... Do you know how to hope it forward? Amen. Hope it forward. Another way of saying this would be hope births hope or hope begets hope. 
Last night, as I shared with the congregation, I actually uh, was mentioning something that occurred a few uh, weeks ago, a few days ago. But then last night, as I was traveling home, uh, I was gripped with the news again of yet another senseless uh, terrorist attack uh, in London where innocent bystanders are gathering together for uh, meals and others that are uh, on the Brooklyn, I mean on the uh, London Bridge were uh, senselessly murdered. Uh, Manchester, another event where children, where young people gathered together for a concert and once again senselessly murdered. But we don't have to go all the way overseas to find adversity. We can find it domestically. Here in our nation, we find war and we find violence and we find struggles uh, within families, within communities. Uh, my own hometown of Chicago is gearing up as the summer months now are coming upon them, uh, preparing and bracing themselves, uh, unfortunately, prayerfully not, uh, but most likely for yet another violent uh, summer. But you all, not only uh, do we find the external challenges around us, but sometimes just internally in our own lives, we're gripped with very difficult situations. Sometimes we receive a bad report from the doctor, and we're grappling with that, uh, that report. Others of us are dealing with domestic issues, maybe strife at home, marital strife, maybe strife with children. Uh, others of us are struggling with career decisions. Should I stay in the job that I'm at? Many of us may be challenged in the area of resources. So no matter what the issues are, whether they are uh, outside of us or within us, when we hear a subject about hope, when we hear a subject title about hope, many of us say, well, I know that's good to hear, but you really don't know my situation. And how can I find hope in such a hopeless world? How can I find hope in such a hopeless situation in my own life? I'm so grateful that the scripture always gives us answers to the complexities that we face in life. So for all of you three-point people who love three points, here you go. I want to just share three points about hope. I want to talk about hope's attitude, hope's attitude, but then hope's aptitude, hope's aptitude, and finally, hope's altitude. So just three things, uh, the attitude of hope, the aptitude of hope, and the altitude of hope. And the, it opens up, you guys, uh, in this text as we look at it with Paul writing to the church at Corinth. Uh, the, uh, the young fledgling church is now growing and multiplying, and the church at Corinth has its unique set of challenges. They've been very generous in the support that they've given to Paul on his missionary journeys, and he's writing to encourage and to thank them for their generous spirit, but also to kind of give them words of encouragement as they are facing adversity from the Roman government and also being believers in an increasingly secularized world. And he's kind of giving them some tips, some words to kind of keep hope alive in the midst of the challenges that they face. So he opens up in verse 7 by saying, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Well, what treasure are we talking about? We're talking about the presence, the spirit of the Lord that he decides to place inside of us. God in his infinite wisdom could have chosen you all to write the plan of salvation, the, the method for people to know him on the leaves of every tree. That every time a leaf would fall, no matter where it falls in the world, uh, in the native language of all of those people, they could pick up a leaf and they could read about the plan of salvation. He could have chosen to do it. 
He's God. He could have chosen to, to write on the sun the plan of salvation, that every time the sun would rise in the east, no matter where people are in the world, they would look at the sun and they would find the plan of salvation. But instead of placing the treasure in those kind of vehicles, he decided to place the treasure, this, this amazing gift of God inside of us, inside of broken you and broken me. All of us are like clay. Uh, I believe that Jeremiah says that uh, we're like uh, clay in the hand of the potter. Oftentimes we're marred. Sometimes we're broken. Sometimes we are cracked in the hand of the potter, but yet he makes us into vessels of honor. I often say that God chooses to place these treasures in crack pots like you and like me. You all, it's amazing that God, who is so powerful, God, who is so amazing, would decide to place such a precious treasure inside of us. But could it be that God has done so, that he might reveal that even though we're not worthy, even though we're not good, even though we don't have all the things that we need to have, he chooses to allow his goodness to shine through us? And the scripture says he does this, why? So that the all-surpassing power would be from God and not from us. He chooses to place these treasures in earthen vessels so that when the treasure shines through the vessel, everyone will know it's not the vessel that is doing it, it's the treasure that is doing it. Indeed, it's God that decides to place his nature inside of us, that when we end up doing things that we know are contrary to what we would normally do, we know it's not of us, but it's of the Lord. Many of us in this room thank God that we're saved. Many of us in this room, uh, if people had any idea who we were in our BC before Christ days, they would be grateful for the gift of God inside of us. Many of you on your way here may have been driving and somebody cut you off and the old nature wanted to flip them the bird. But God's grace was on you, and he held your hand from doing that. Many of us, you all, we, we have a flip tongue. We can kind of, uh, you know, have that razor tongue that can, can say things that are hurtful or say things that are harmful. But the Lord holds our tongue. Many times, you all, it is the Lord at work in us that causes us to do those things that we know that without him we could never do. This treasure has been placed in jars of clay so that the surpassing power of God and presence of God would be recognized to not be of us, but of him. Indeed, you all, it's the Lord at work in us. And to God be the glory that he loves us enough to place his presence inside of us. Amen. Anybody grateful about that? But then he tells us because he is inside of us, because he does dwell inside of us, that he gives us some assurances that should change the way we have our thinking and our attitude about life. He says this in verse 8, we are hard pressed on every side, hard pressed on every side. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life, you all, where it seems like every direction that I turn, there's trouble. When you wake up in the morning, sometimes when you reflect on the day before, the day before was filled with trouble. And as you're preparing for the day ahead, the day ahead looks like trouble. And then as you lean over next to you, the person in the bed, your wife, your spouse, your husband, they look like trouble. And then... And then when you when we think about the kids down the hall, they're trouble. And, and you all, imagine you all living a life where no matter what's, what, what angle you're looking at, it's filled with trouble. Many of you dealing with so many issues in every direction you turn, it seems to be overwhelming. 
And let me just say this, you all, as we're going through this message today, and I know how the enemy thinks and how, how the enemy strategizes. He will make you think that, well, well, pastor, you don't know my situation. You don't know my circumstance. If you had any idea the depth of sorrow, the depth of pain, the depth of suffering that I'm dealing with, you would not be so flippant and kind of trivial in talking about the issues of my heart. And I want you to know that that's not what I'm doing. I'm not trivializing. I'm not minimizing the pain and maybe the, the genuine issues that you're dealing with. But I am reminding you that even though those issues are real and even though those mountains are high, we have a Savior and we have a God that is greater than the issues that you're dealing with. The Bible says this, that greater is God inside of you than the enemy that is in the world. And it doesn't matter that the issues are big. We have a God that is bigger. And he says that even when you find yourself perplexed on every side, here's the promise. Here's the attitude that hope has. It says pressed on every side, but guess what? Not crushed. Not crushed. He says you can be perplexed. Have you ever not known what to do? Have you ever been backed up against the wall and just did not know how to make the right decision? Needed wisdom. Should I let this friendship go? Should I enter into this friendship? Should I get married? Should I, should I do this? Should I do the other? Not knowing the direction, not knowing what to do. Have you ever been perplexed? He says, even though we're perplexed, he says, we are still not people who despair. Listen, hear this promise that the, the issues that we face internally, sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're beyond us. But he reminds us that if he is inside of us, he gives us the ability to have the right attitude about those challenges. You are the enemy wants us to cave in. The enemy wants you to move into depression. The enemy wants you to be angry at the world. The enemy's hoping that the issues that are now in front of you would be greater than the God that's in you. But you've got to have the attitude that no matter what the issues are, no matter how how big the mountains are. God is bigger than them, and I will not allow the enemy to take me into depression and to take me away from the confidence that I have in Christ. I'm not going to allow it. And so you all hope has an attitude that I'm not going to have the wrong perspective when the challenges of life internally face me. But not only do we find internal struggles, there's some external things that happen. Look at verse 9. It says, persecuted persecuted. You all, in this life, the scripture says, you and I will have trials and tribulations. We're not going to be exempt from it. Many of us, I think, unfairly think that the moment that we accept Jesus, we're just going to kind of tiptoe through the tulips and everything's going to be a great day. And I'm not saying that God does not give us the ability to triumph. I'm not saying that God does not call us to victory. He does. But, but in this life, we will suffer. And I'm afraid many times, theologically, many people are building cases about living a life free of challenge, free of difficulty, free of persecution. But I wonder what kind of Bible are they reading? Because the Jesus that I follow, uh, perfect, sinless, holy perfection, he was persecuted. The Jesus who never did anything wrong, he was murdered. He was maligned. He was betrayed. And if Jesus, the one whom we follow, was persecuted, then what makes us think that we are exempt from persecution. There's a story of a lady down in Mississippi who was giving a testimony at a, uh, one of those good old-fashioned testimonial services, and she stood up in the church and said, first giving honor to God, who's the head of my life, to this pastor and to the church. I thank God that I've been saved for 22 years, and I've been running with the Lord, and not one time have I ever encountered the devil. The pastor said, okay, do you mind bowing your head in prayer? She said, I don't mind at all. He said, repeat these words after me. Lord Jesus, come into my heart and save me. 
Immediately she looked up and she said, wait a minute, pastor, what do you mean? I said that I've been saved, I've been running with the Lord for 22 years. She said, if you, he said, if you've been running with the Lord for 22 years and you've never met the devil, it's because you've been running with the devil. Listen, you all, when you and I accept Jesus and he becomes our savior, it means we've changed kingdoms. We've changed allegiances. And without any effort of your own, you've automatically entered into a battle. You've automatically entered into a warfare with the wicked one, with the enemy of God. And it doesn't mean that we give glory to that or we focus on that, but we don't need to think that we are exempt of persecution. So what is the attitude of hope when we're persecuted? I'm glad you asked. It says persecuted, but not abandoned. You know what that means? That means that the persecution comes, but you are not alone in the persecution. You've got the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords with you in the middle of your persecution. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, there are three guys in the Bible that kind of give a, a testimony of that. Uh, three guys, uh, Hebrew boys, back in the Old Testament. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro. You know these guys. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Abednego, I know, I know, I know. All right. All right, so these three Hebrew boys, uh, they, they decide to not bow down to this. And for those that are not laughing, what's wrong with you? You got an issue. You really do. That's why nobody likes you. You have no friends. That's okay. All right, so, so, so here it is. So, so these three Hebrew boys uh, had the king's decree that if they did not bow down and worship the golden image, that they would be thrown into a fiery furnace. They chose to not defile themselves when, by bowing down to this image, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. You know the story. These three boys are thrown in bound. The king looks back in, and he notices something different. He noticed that they're now walking loose, free inside of the furnace, inside of the furnace, walking around free. But he says, wait a minute, I thought I just threw in three. He says, but I see a fourth man, and he looks like the son of God. Here it is. God does not deliver them from the furnace. He delivers them in the furnace. Sometimes God does not take us out of the situation, but he shows up in the situation. Sometimes God does not, oh, I feel the Holy Ghost. Sometimes. Sometimes God does not remove the problem from us, but he shows up with us in the problem, reminding us that he has not abandoned us. He says, persecuted, but not abandoned. But not only that, you all, the external challenges of life come at us and bring persecution, but it says we can be struck down, but not destroyed. You all, I might date myself. I might give my age away. But when I was little, I got a little toy that I love so much. Uh, it was called a weeble. Now, for all the folk, weebles wobble, but they, all right, all the old folk got it, all right. <laughs> it was a little toy. It looked like a little egg, you guys, and it was called a weeble, and, and the commercial would show the weeble would do this, and no matter what position it got in, it would always come back to its original position, and my mother bought me a weeble, and I was determined to be the one that made the weeble stay down. So I got the weeble, you all, and I put my foot on top of the weeble's head, and the weeble stayed down. It stayed down while my foot was on the head, but the moment that I moved my foot, bam, the weeble popped back up. I took the sofa, and I put the sofa, yeah, I did, on top of the weeble, and my mother came. She said, boy, what are you doing with that sofa? I said, mama, I'm keeping the weeble down, and the moment that I took the sofa off the weeble, the weeble popped back up again. I said, mama, what is it about the weeble? She said, baby, something is on the inside of the weeble that regardless of how much you put it down, 
it keeps popping back up. Well, Northridge, I came to let you know you've got a God on the inside of you, and you might be struck down, but you are not destroyed. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost in here. Hallelujah. Greater is God in you than the enemy that is in the world. And when you know that, it gives you an attitude to be able to rebound from any adversity, whether internal or external. He says the attitude of hope is that no matter what comes my way, I'm reminded of who's on the inside of me. And I'm able to then have the right perspective no matter what comes my way. But not only do we need to have the right attitude with hope, we need to understand the aptitude. How is it that hope works? What what gives it the power to operate the way that it does? And that's found in verse 10. It says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that his life may be revealed in us. Listen, you all, it's it's, it's a theological principle that if we get it, it could change our lives forever. You and I were born in sin, born separated from God, and it's nothing that we did. It was what we kind of inherited from our spiritual foreparents. Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God, that moment they were separated from God, and that separation continued until this day. And the Bible says that every one of us was born and shaped in iniquity. And I know it's hard for us to believe that, and we, I don't believe that little children who are not at the age cognitively to understand, or maybe even adults who cognitively are not able to understand that God brings them judgment. I believe God's a fair and a just God. But the moment that children start getting kind of cognitively aware, have you noticed how bad they get? So my daughter, I just have one daughter, she's 25 now, but when my little baby girl uh, was small, I told her, I said, Tiffany, uh, don't go to the refrigerator. Ask mom and dad if you need something, because we don't want you to hurt yourself trying to go in the refrigerator. Get it. She says, okay, dad. One day I come home and I see her face is just milk all over her mouth. I said, Tiffany, have you been to the refrigerator? No. <laughs> I take her, I hold her up to the mirror. I said, what's on your face? Nothing. I said, Tiffany, there's milk on your face. She said, Mommy did it. (laughs) Just a little liar, you know what I'm saying? Precious, you know, pigtails, liar. You all, listen, all of us, listen, we don't have to teach our children to tell the truth, I mean, to, to lie, we have to teach them to tell the truth. Why? Because children, even in their innocence, the older they get, the more cognitive they become, the sin nature, the sin bent, as it does with all of us, begins to grow, and it grows, and it matures. And for all of us who don't know Christ, unless we find something to stop that sin nature, we're all going to be judged because of it. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. You and I, every last one of us in this place, we deserve death. Have you ever heard the Ten Commandments? They were not ten suggestions. They were not ten requests. They were Ten Commandments. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever read them, if you just want to get depressed, read the Ten Commandments. Because I got depressed at the first one, you know what I'm saying? And, and for every one of us, we know that at one point or another, we've all broken one of those commandments. Well, why would God who is pure, why would God who is holy 
ask us who are fallen to do that. Listen, he wanted to show us that we could not please God without God. Let me say it again. Why would God give commandments to humanity to behave a certain way that he knew that we're incapable of behaving in our own strength? Because he wanted us to realize that I do have standards. I do have expectations. I do have things that I want you to do, but I want you to realize you cannot do those things without me. So then Jesus comes, sinless perfection, not born like you and I, born of a virgin, lives a sinless life. And the Bible says as he got ready to approach Calvary, he decided to become sin. He who knew no sin became sin. He took your sin. He took my sin upon himself. And the one who was innocent became guilty. And then he died. What we deserved, what we should have had happen, he took it upon himself. He died. And then he promised us this, that if you would accept me, the judgment that I receive on your behalf, I'm going to make an exchange. I'm going to give you life as I took death. I'm going to give you an opportunity to be in heaven with God and to reign with him forever and ever, although you deserve hell. If you accept me, I'm going to place my nature on the inside of you. And what you would be incapable of doing in and of your own strength, you will be able now to do through me. Which means then we are now able to do what God asks. We're now able to operate in the right way, not by our own will, not by our own strength, but by the greater one who lives on the inside of us. So what happens is this. Jesus comes on the inside of us, giving us the aptitude or the ability to have hope when everything seems hopeless. I will never forget a, a lady by the name of Diana Moffat. She was in our youth church, and she was one of our youth workers when I was youth pastor in Chicago. And I'll never forget this day. It is stamped in my head. She had just lost her job. She had just lost the only source of income that she had. And she came into the church, and she said, praise God. I said, what is it, Miss Moffat? I lost my job. Hallelujah. Glory to God. I have no income at all. I'm like, there's medication for you, I'm sure. <laughs> I had no idea why she was, I said, Miss Moffitt, you just lost your job. You have no income. Why are you excited? She, and she looked at me almost with sympathy. Oh, pastor, you don't understand, obviously. You don't understand that when God shuts one door, he's getting ready to open another door. You don't understand that my source was not the job, but God is my source. Oh, y'all don't hear what I'm saying to you. God is your source. And when you realize that God is on the inside of you, it gives you the aptitude to change your attitude. You're able to think different because you know different. And I came to let somebody know that no matter what you're dealing with, you have the power to be able to think right, give God glory, give God praise in the middle of what you're dealing with. Is there anybody here that believes that God is worthy of the glory and worthy of the praise no matter what's going on in your life? If you don't mind, would you just give him a thanksgiving offering for about three seconds? Hallelujah, he's wonderful. It confuses the enemy. 
when troubles come your way and you give God praise. He expects you to curse. He expects you to close the blinds and go into depression. He expects you to cut yourself off from everybody. But he confuses the enemy when he comes in like a flood and throws adversity against you. And instead of you getting angry, you start giving God the glory. Instead of getting upset, you start giving God the praise. Why is that? Because praise is what brings God on the scene. God inhabits the praises of his people. When the praises go up, the blessings come down down. When the praises go up, the deliverance comes down. When the praises go up, the healing comes down. Is there anybody here that's not ashamed to give God some praise? He's a good God. He's a good God. He is a good God, you are. And he's worthy of the praise. He's worthy of the praise. Have a seat if you can. God desires that this aptitude that we have to do all things through Christ who gives us the strength would change then the way in which we approach the challenges of life. You guys, I'm not saying that the challenges are not real, but I am saying that when you get a revelation that the same God that raised Jesus from the dead is also present in you to raise you up. It also gives you an altitude. It gives you the ability to start soaring above the situation. That's our last point. Not only do we need to have the right attitude with hope, not only do we need to understand the aptitude and the ability of hope to work in us through Christ, we also need to know that once we get that down, we're able to soar above situations and circumstances, and it's found right here in the text. It says in verse 14, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. I love that verse. It says the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Listen, you all, grace is a gift. Grace is something we cannot earn. It's what God gives to us unmeritingly. And so all of us have been given grace gifts by God. And many of us, you all, because we are so used to pain and so used to rejection and so used to, uh, to difficulty, listen, we kind of live our lives like this. Well, God has blessed me and God has done some things in my life, but I know the pain of what people do. I know the pain of, of discouragement. I know the pain of betrayal. So I'm going to kind of protect myself. I'm going to take the things of God, the blessings of God, and kind of hold them close. Well, you know what? You do have them close to you, and true enough, nobody will bother them, and nobody can take them because you're kind of living your life like that. But can I tell you something else? Nothing can also get in there. You might live your life like that, and you might be living a protected life, a a safe life, but it's not a full life. God calls us to live our lives open-handed. So that as we are doing this, as we're allowing the grace gifts to flow out of us, listen, to realize that I've been given to give. I've been given grace to give grace. I've been healed to help heal. I've been delivered to help deliver. I've been, I've been set free to help someone else be set free. And that knowledge of the grace gift of God enables someone else to be helped. 
And could it be that God has allowed you to be blessed the way that you are so that that blessing would not just be contained in your own space, in your own life, but that you would be a conduit for the blessing of God to the world? And the Bible says that when you do that, allow the blessing to go beyond you, it results in praise to God. Look what it says in the text. It says that when you allow the grace that is reaching more people, it causes thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. That means that God gets the glory when we choose to live our lives open-handed before him. That means that the gift that you have is not for you, but it is for him. You guys, I, I keep giving away uh, my childhood uh, uh, life, but, but I also enjoy Batman. Not, not the new Dark Knight guy, but the da 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 that one. The old Batman, and every, every episode of Batman on television, Batman was going to die. Every episode of Batman, he was going to be murdered every episode. And as a child, I would be traumatized every single day at the impending doom of Batman. But one particular time, it was more than what my heart could handle. Batman was on a conveyor belt, and there was a big saw Y'all remember that one? And he, was, and he was heading down the saw, and it was commercial break time. And I ran into the kitchen. I said, Mama! Mama, Batman about to die. He's about, about to kill him. They're about to saw him in half. They about to, it's going to be two Batmans, but not. And Mama said, baby, Batman ain't going to die. But how you know, Mama? How you know Batman ain't going to die? You ain't seen him. I saw him. He on the conveyor belt. There's a big old saw at the end. She said, baby, when you go back in there after the commercial, I'm going to prophesy. <laughs> Batman is not going to die. I said, how you know? She said, what's the name of the show? <laughs> Batman, exactly. Baby, Batman can't die because he the title of the show. It ain't going to be Robin. It ain't going to be uh, the, the butler guy. It ain't going to be Commissioner. Go it's going to be Batman. Baby, just go back in there. And, and I went back in there. I wiped the tears from my eye. I sat down, and, and I saw the, it was getting close. Lo and behold, <laughs> Batman reaches into his trusty utility belt and pulls out a Turn the saw into icicle spray. And, he's <laughs> and he sprays the saw. The saw cracks open. He gets out of the thing. Batman is safe. In another episode, a, a big old shark was on his leg, and he had some shark repellent spray in the same belt. And I realized that if Batman can reach into his belt and pull out an answer for his situation, I got a belt that I can reach into called the Word of the Living. Oh, God. You might be in the midst of the worst time in your life, but God sent me to Northridge Church to remind you, I know you're on the belt. I know you're in the hourglass, and the sand is coming up to your nose. I know the shark is on your leg, but there is a God who's inside of you, and if you pull out the Word of God, so in the 45 seconds I got left, we're getting ready to do something. And I'm, I know some of y'all are not going to get with Harvey. I appreciate so much your energy. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and I'm grateful, but, but please don't uh, invite me to do something uncomfortable. I, that's not my personality. That's not my personality type. You're very energetic, and I'm happy about that, but that's not the way that God has wired me. I saw you at the big house. I saw you at the Star Spartan Stadium. I saw you at the Red Wings game hugging a fat man that you didn't know. So don't tell me you don't have a personality type to give God some praise. So we're getting ready to give God some praise in this place. Let the redeemed of the Lord let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Give God some praise. God, you're holy. God, you're wonderful. God, you're perfect. And Heavenly Father, we pray that the praise that you have heard now from these, your people, would be a reminder, God, that they know that you're at work within them. And Father, for every adversity that they face, we're not minimizing it, but we are maximizing your power above it. And God, would we have the right attitude? Would we operate in the right strength and aptitude? And would it now change the altitude, the way in which we live and the way in which we walk, above and beyond the circumstances, triumphing in you? And so we glorify your name. God, there may be someone here that doesn't know you. And our prayer right now is that he or she will come to know you. If you're here and you've never accepted Jesus in your life, nothing complicated. Just simply say, Lord, save me. Jesus, I commit my life to you. And in that one moment, heaven has heard you. Jesus has heard you. And all of heaven is rejoicing over the decision that you have now made to follow him. We give you glory, God, and we give you praise for what you're doing and what you've yet to do. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, Northridge, give God praise in the house. Hallelujah. If you prayed that prayer, if you prayed that prayer to ask Jesus into your life, we want to be in touch with you. Uh, in the bulletin, there's just a little information packet here. Just tear it off. If you prayed that prayer to ask Jesus into your life, please drop that outside of any of the containers right outside of guest services. We want to get back with you so that we can pray with you. Northridge, hope it forward. Don't let the enemy discourage you. Jesus is greater than the problem. God bless you and God keep you.